Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to episode five of the Mind Vine Podcast. I believe five. it's episode five. Yeah, it is, I think yeah. you one. Yeah, we had the first one in August, and this is our our fourth roll, one since <laughs> we've been here at the uh, Canadian Mental Health Association's Mental Health for All conference here at the Hilton in Toronto. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really good conference. There's a lot of buzz, a lot of activity, and we got to meet a lot of great people. Yeah, and it's kind of neat being here. Everybody's kind of walking by us, seeing what we're up to, and and seeing uh, checking the board to see what guests are coming up. And uh, we are lucky enough to have some great guests today. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, first by Chief John Perry. He's the uh, chief of the London Police Service. He just presented a few minutes ago um, about the relationship between hospitals and uh, law enforcement. And we'll talk a lot about probably the evolution of mental health, I suppose, and in terms of what police officers deal with on the streets and what they deal with in their, in their lives. Yeah, I'm not excited to talk to him because... Um and part of my role at Ontario Shores, you know, we work closely with police. Um, we, you know, we support the OPP Mental Health Advisory Committee and, and supporting our local police. So I'm really excited to talk to him about some of the initiatives we are seeing in London. And I'm really excited to talk to Vincent Bolt because he's from Sudbury, <laughs> just like me. And uh, he works for TG Intersalves. He's the project coordinator of that group in Sudbury, and uh, he's a transgender man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually sat, sat in on his presentation earlier today. Uh, really interesting guy. Um, some of the stats around transgender people and mental health, it is yeah. alarming. Yeah, it's, it's, and I'm glad we have someone on the show to, to talk about that issue. It's, it's one of the most stigmatized you know, populations, and it's good to have a conversation and get some really good insight because it is, it is a crisis when you look at the, the, the rates of suicide and mental illness and transgender. It's something we need to talk about more. And speaking of heavily stigmatized, so is Sudbury. I don't, By people like you. Yeah. It'll be nice to have somebody from the great white north, as I call it, um, on the podcast. And I'll be, it'll be two Siberians versus you. So um, I'm very excited about that. So yeah. hopefully everybody enjoys uh, our guest today. Thanks. So we're pleased to be joined by Chief John Perry of the London Police Service. He was uh, welcome, first of welcome. all. Thanks for being Thank here. You for Thank you. And uh, you were part of a panel discussion this morning at the, at the conference. Can you tell us a little bit about your role there? Sure. I'm part of uh, a group of uh, individuals that partner to look at the police hospital transition. And so that's the handover when uh, the police have apprehended an individual under the Mental Health Act. And now I've taken him to the emergency department for uh, for assessment, and uh, part of it was uh, looking at um, a couple of different um, uh, things. One is you know improving the outcomes for individuals that have been have been apprehended on the Mental Health Act, uh, and uh, reducing the impact on uh, police resources and uh, hospital resources, and how we can do a better job. But ultimately, it was about the individual in crisis and how we can improve outcomes for them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of work went into uh, creating a framework and uh, some tools uh, for individuals uh, or communities, individual communities to, uh, to use to uh, uh, develop these protocols. So I know I'm, I'm part of that is trying to keep people out of emergency rooms. And one of the tools 
place you're using is sort of the mobile crisis intervention team. And so um, what kind of things have London, has London been doing to try and, um, you know, officers, <laughs> they face a big role in dealing, you know, with mental health calls. What are the kind of the tools uh, are you guys doing to sort of help officers in dealing with that? Yeah, absolutely. The the frequency of uh, individuals in uh, uh, crisis coming into contact with police have improved, uh, I think, uh, really everywhere. Uh, but in London, we started in about 2011 to develop a local strategy and some of our partners. And we we're very fortunate with uh, the partnership that we developed with CMHA Middlesex around uh, a mobile crisis response team that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. Mm -hmm. And so we've uh, started that in, uh, I think it was around uh, the end of 2011, beginning of th 2012. And so we, uh, they're available to us, um, and they, they've been great. They respond to about 95% of uh, the times that we've uh, called them. The other 5% is because they've been tied up uh, with other needs uh, from individuals, because even the community themselves can call the crisis response team. The other thing uh, CMHA Middlesex did in our community, which I think was great, is they, uh, they opened up a crisis center. That again is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, 365. And uh, one of the second pieces of that project, there's some crash beds that are going to be available to individuals for 24 or 72 hours. So we started, uh, we were part of the pilot uh, when this started in uh, December of uh, 2015. So we were able to take individuals there or refer individuals there uh, that may not have been at that threshold of having to apprehend under the Mental Health Act. And uh, or, you know, working with the mobile crisis response team about what is the, the best course of action to get the, the individual connected with the right service at the right time mm -hmm. and to give them that quality uh, health care that they needed. So it has been uh, the, the results in London have been tremendous. We've been tracking uh, since 2012. Everything from the number of occurrences involving uh, mental health to how long it's taken us mm -hmm. to deal with it. And we've seen uh, some, some uh, tremendous results. So great. It's been good. So, so London was really ahead of the Ayakabuchi report. You were doing a lot of great things uh, in advance of that. I'm just curious as far as, you know, things like the Ayakabuchi report and, and all these some sort of sentinel events that get in the media. How stressful is it for officers in dealing with this crisis feeling like, you know, we're under the magnifying glass a little bit when it comes to dealing with these crises and being sure that they respond in a positive way as well and, and dealing with that crisis in, in the right way possible. Well, for the officers themselves, I mean, a lot of it goes into the training. Right. I mean, uh, we've heard a lot about the training. So and it's, it's developing that training and who can deliver that training and, and how best to deliver that training. And... Um, uh, unfortunately, for policing, there is so much that is mandatory training that we, we're, you know, we're not able to develop some of those other skills. So you you have to do the best you can with the time that's allotted for the training, and the dollars that are are uh, allocated for uh, for training. So, it um, we've been working with our partners. Uh, you know, we're not uh, we share a lot of information and we share a lot of uh, training tools, and we continue to do that to improve those outcomes from those interactions. You don't you don't rise to the position you're in with Without a depth of experience in policing and I would imagine that mental health training at the beginning of your career looked a lot different than it does for an officer now. Uh, can yeah, you talk a little bit about what, the, yeah. that, like, what that journey has been like? Yeah, absolutely. My career has been a little bit different because I started out, uh, actually I was working at a psychiatric facility while going to university. I worked in corrections before I came to policing so I've kind of seen mental health in three different sectors. Yeah. 
But uh, absolutely, the training uh, was specific to the legislation uh, in the Mental Health Act and what is your authority for apprehension. That really was what the training was uh, when I started out my policing career. And it has developed, you know, to identifying, uh, you know, mental health and, and what some of the, uh, you know, diagnoses are and some of the medication, the escalation techniques, how to, uh, to interact with individuals and also learning from our communities what are the services that are available. And, uh, you know, we've, uh, and every community is different. Uh, some are, are further ahead than others, but uh, there's a lot of great uh, community service uh, providers out there that, that assist us on a daily basis. I was going to say on the uh, on the street level or on the ground level when it comes to your uh, your police force has the desire to have that training to know more about their community and the mental health services available and what to do in these situations has that grown significantly over the last few years yeah, I can only speak from the uh, the London experience, and uh, if you were to look at many of the organizations uh, in our community uh, connected to mental health, whether it be youth or adult or whatnot, you're likely going to find a police officer somehow connected to that organization, and uh, and again, that allows them to bring back that experience uh, to uh, to the uh, to the police service. So I know that um, actually one of our superintendents is uh, on the board at CMHA Middlesex. We have uh, other members that are connected to a lot of the youth uh, services in our community that provide mental health uh, services. And uh, so it's, it's a great opportunity for us to, to learn and to bring back those experiences. And do you think we're seeing or we are starting to see maybe an evolution in, in the, the police officer where, I mean, when we were younger, it was really like physical attributes, all these things, where now we know there's really a good kind of social skill set that's needed. Like, are there people that maybe traditionally not years and years ago wouldn't get into policing looking at as a career because they they can bring that that skill set that's in so demand now that's a little bit different than it used to be. It's um, it's interesting you bring that up because uh, you know there is no mold in terms of what you're looking for in a police officer, and we get uh, people from. Uh, all different educational backgrounds, all different life experience, uh, you know, all uh, different cultures. And so everyone comes together to really put together a puzzle of, uh, you know, a service, a police service that can provide the best to the community. Um, but, I mean, there are those skill sets. Um, I, as a police leader, and I think many will say the same thing, we'd like to get out of the health business because mental sure. health is the health business. But uh, we do have a role to play in. And uh, but our role seems to be expanding, um, but it's finding that right balance. So <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, that's the thing with with mental health calls is because you're a 24/7, 365 day service. So whenever there's a, a crisis, you're you're going to get the call. So you're dealing with those. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to flip it a little bit. Is is we kind of unless people really get to know first responders what they go through. What about the mental well-being and the health of officers? Because it's a, it's a tough job. The things that, you, you know, your officers are dealing with and seeing with. What kind of supports uh, maybe have changed as far as officers? What are you doing at London to support your own officers as far as their mental well-being? Yeah, the, uh, the occupational stress injuries and PTSD has really um, become a growing concern uh, for police services. And, um, you know, a lot of that came out of uh, a report from the ombudsman that just focused on one police service. But quite frankly, I think every police service were failing their members yeah. and even their families that uh, have to, uh, to deal with this. So there's been lots of change uh, around, uh, you know, reducing the stigma, uh, which is very important, but also trying to find, you know, educating uh, some prevention strategies and some support. So in London, we have... Um, 
you know, we, we identify incidents where um, it's, uh, you know, a critical incident and we, we conduct a debrief. We have uh, members within our organization that are trained to provide that, uh, uh, the debrief. We have uh, peer support, uh, which we brought in uh, last year. And again, uh, members that have been trained, uh, both sworn and civilian. In fact, we even trained some of our chaplains uh, as part of this peer support. We do a lot with our families. We've had uh, we've brought family members in with uh, with their partners and uh, and talked about some of the impacts that officers and uh, civilian members would face, and what they can do. Um, you know, we have an employee and assistance program, and through our internal website uh, for our members, we've even posted uh, you know within the community psychologists that are available that have you know some policing experience that they can reach out to. And uh, this fall, actually, uh, the Tomorrow is October, so uh, this month we're going to be starting uh, the, the road to mental health uh, training for oh, all good. our members, both sworn nice. and civilians. So it continues to evolve, and uh, there is a lot of work that's put in that to support our members. We, we had talked uh, before with Joe Kim with CMHA about the OHL program, and there's a, with athletes, there's that kind of, you know, feeling where you don't talk about what you're going through, and there's, and police is kind of the same. Like, you know, there's a fear of sharing maybe something that's seen as, a, seen as a weakness and how will my partner think if, like is that culture changing a little bit is it slowly changing or how are we getting as far as officers feeling comfort in sharing those challenges that they go through and not keeping them to themselves I think it's slowly changing uh, to be quite uh, quite honest I don't think we're there yet I think still more needs to be done that uh, members uh, feel comfortable uh, that they will be supported, and I think that comes down to uh, continuing uh, to find those opportunities to show your support. And uh, you know, I think if you were to look around, when it's a physical ailment, everyone's there to help out. But everyone is kind of steps back when it's uh, what's in, when it's a mental health issue. And I think we have to do better about continuing to show that support. But it has moved from that bravado right. uh, mm -hmm. mentality to uh, uh, to a much uh, more caring and compassionate organizations. And I think you're seeing it. We're just not there yet. Right. I think part of that uh, change is like you being in a conference like this, um, having a police chief present at the CMHA conference. When I saw that, it's like. I, I thought maybe a few years ago you wouldn't have seen that kind of relationship, right? I think we're still we're still evolving slowly and and figuring things out and how to work together better. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, uh, you know, I think it's the evolution of what we talked earlier about with policing and some of the things that you have to have uh, as part of your your toolkit and uh, really having a, a clear understanding of some of the uh, stressors that people face in these crises, now whether it be mental health or other crises. Is, is part of the job to recognize that and uh, know where you can point the individual for the su support and services they need. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. chatting with yeah. you, and we appreciate you stopping by the podcast and being here, and uh, it was great to meet you. Yeah, great. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Thank you. Thanks. Welcome, Vincent Bolt. To the Mindvine podcast. Vincent's the project coordinator at TG Interselves in, in the great city of Sudbury. Yes, great city. And uh, it's great to have you, Vincent. Thanks for joining us. It's such a great city that they had to put greater in the title. That's true. <laughs> it is. I, I could have used that uh, three, four years ago when I started working with him. And he likes, he likes to poke fun at Sudbury and Sudburyans. I'm sure it's just in jest, so if he does go I there, don't. please don't give him a I, hard time. I, but, I'm uh, going to get a call from the mayor. <laughs> I, I, 
You should. You should actually. I don't. I, For somebody who's never been there, you have a lot of opinions about Sudbury. But no, just you. I, just me. Just you. <laughs> Please. So moving on from Sudbury to uh, the work you do in Sudbury with uh, TG Intersolves, and you were uh, you were here today presenting as part of the CMHA conference, uh, Mental Health for All. Can you tell us a little bit about the presentation and the work you do at uh, back home in Sudbury? So the presentation that I did today was um, a lot about how to make services more accepting of trans individuals and I talked about my own story because it's such an important piece when you are providing any kind of training or education to put that human face to it because we're not just numbers and often when you're sharing your experiences and your stories you tell how things happened how it was done and what probably could have been done better and sharing a lot of those things around the statistics with suicide and bullying. Well, I experienced suicidal behavior and bullying. So it's it makes it more human when you give a story behind those numbers. And then I went a little deeper into some of the numbers around bullying and suicide and, and practices like running support groups. Um, some groups that I've attended as a youth were all about, here's our schedule and this is what we're doing. And it wasn't any of that conversation with the youth saying, what do you want? What do you want to see? Who do you want us to bring in? What's interesting to you? And you want the people who are attending the groups to have the same say as the people running the groups. Mm. Having a peer-led group is, is imperative. And we have a number of groups that are successful because we listen to what people want. Um, and especially with youth engagement, I've learned two things home-baked goods and arts and crafts. That brings youth out. <laughs> and when in your presentation today, you, uh, I know, and you mentioned just earlier that we're, these are people, not numbers. But mm -hmm. some of the numbers that you cited in the presentation today like, were, were mind-blowing, for mm -hmm. lack of a, a better term. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, 77% you know, of transgender people have seriously contemplated suicide. That was one of the numbers that you, it's just, it's alarming. Like if that was almost any other population, um, there'd be a huge outcry. Yes, yes, and it's sad to see how many people come through the door who have either contemplated suicide, are currently contemplating suicide, or who have attempted suicide. The majority of the youth that I've worked with have been hospitalized at some point and I do get a lot of calls from the hospitals saying we have a youth here and we don't know how to accommodate them or I get a call from the youth saying they're not accommodating me properly and it becomes an issue because they're there for a reason they're there because things had gotten to the point where they felt so out of hope and they they attempted to take their life or they were considering it enough and check themselves in because they didn't want to go that far. And then to be put in the situation where you're vulnerable and your identity is not being respected. Um, things have gotten a lot better. I've done a lot of training with the hospital and I'm seeing the changes with the staff and it takes time for change to happen, right? So not everyone's going to change overnight. Not everyone's attitudes are going to change overnight. Not everyone has been trained yet. Um, but the important thing is definitely acknowledging 
how serious suicide is as a problem in the trans population. And for youths, the, the risk is really high. It's double the numbers for youth as it is for adults. Um, the other really important thing I want to note about suicide and trans youth is that the suicide risk and the attempted suicide rates and the suicidal behavior drops by 93% if trans youth have fully supportive parents. I wanted to, and I, it was interesting because I wanted to touch on the, the parent piece because I, um, we've seen it in mental health where, you know, it almost took a sentinel event for the parents to kind of click in. And it's not that they're bad parents. Mm -hmm. It's hard. And I think you said even in your case that, I mean, it may be hard for a parent to admit that their child has a mental illness, but to say, you know, I feel like I, I'm losing a daughter or a son. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean they're bad parents, but how do we, how do we support them to be more accommodating and understanding? Because you're right. I think that's so important that they, that when the when the youth or the child is speaking to their parents, that they feel it's not a barrier. That I can't talk to them about it. I have support, even if they don't have all the answers. You know, what can we do to support the parent piece so that they support their their young person and the family? One of the things we started a couple of years ago was a support group for parents and family members because that that's it exactly. Um, my parents are not terrible people, and they're not terrible parents. But when I came out as trans, they had no idea what to do. They lost it. And they weren't supportive of my transition in the beginning. It took a long time for them to come around because they had no idea. And they were losing a daughter in their eyes. And the funny thing was, actually, I have a funny story. Um, I digress a little bit. This is a funny story. So I found this poster in one of the subways at subway stations here. The only subways we have in Sudbury are restaurants. So <laughs> it was in the tunnel on the, on the wall, and it was this poster that said, Mom, I'm not a girl. And so I took a picture, and I sent it to my mom, and, it's, and I wrote, sounds familiar? And she <laughs> responded back by saying, yes, Vincent. I want to be a fireman not a firefighter. Do you remember that? <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I don't remember that at all. But that was a little, a little hint when I was much, much younger that something was going on. Um, but when it comes to supporting parents, you know, they may have a similar situation where they have a, a little girl saying, I want to be a fireman, not a firefighter. Mm. Or call me Jonathan instead of Joanne. And they don't know what that is, and they don't know how to respond to that. And so I do have parents now who contact me out of the blue and say, so my kid is expressing this, and I don't know what this means, and I don't know what to do, and I want to support them, but I don't know how. Or I get the parents who, who were really hesitant in helping their kids with transition earlier on, but they see how much their kid is struggling. Or it's a situation like me where I was in the hospital, and that's when my parents had their epiphany. And you have a parent who's in that situation, or they see it's about to reach that, and they go, okay, I need to do something. Um, and then I get the parents who are completely supportive, mm -hmm. but don't know where to go and don't know who to turn to. So they come to me because they don't know which physicians to see. Um, they're finding some really outdated information on the internet about where to go, or even some physicians 
I mean, I recently had somebody say that they were going to be referred to the Child and Adolescent Clinic at CAMH in Toronto, which was closed a while ago. It's not even in operation. And they were going to be sent there. And I'm going, oh, oh, no, 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 no. This this is why I'm here. Um, Just because... It's not open. You can't send somebody to a clinic that no longer exists. Yeah, yeah. It's probably not best practice. No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, And also sending people out of town when there are physicians in Sudbury who are working with trans kids. And that's another thing we really want to avoid. Um, majority of the people that I work with live in poverty. And a lot of the families that I work with live below the poverty line. So traveling with their kids mm-hmm. is certainly a barrier. And it, as a parent, it's it's not easy to say, okay, we'll spend all of our money this month to drive you to Ottawa mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when there are other kids in the family that have their own needs. So being able to get that support locally is also that, really important that's for families. That's key. Like we even have, uh, we started an eating disorders unit. And previously, um, families were going down to places like Utah. And I think, you know, it's hard enough, but you need that support. Can you imagine how hard it is for a family to, to give that support when they're so far away and they've got to maintain a job? And so, mm-hmm. you know, having these programs in their home community is really vital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things uh, you touched on is, uh, you know, your struggle with depression and anxiety uh, as a young person and, and uh, through your transition and all those years where a regular teenager is going through difficulties, let alone what, like what you were going through. Mm-hmm. But people, it's hard to believe, but people don't necessarily draw the, li- the, the line from what a trans person is dealing with to mental health, right? To the, when, you know, the, they think the two may be mutually exclusive. Like, mm-hmm. what, what can we do as a mental health sector to support the trans um, person community, um, you know, to make sure that they have the support they need? Because they're having these difficult conversations. You, you mm-hmm. talked about being bullied. Uh, like, there are so many things that can impact a person's uh, well-being when they're going through this kind of transition. Mm-hmm. But you have a psychiatrist say that your transition is irrelevant, that's a huge problem. Mm. And I've heard, I've heard that complaint where the person that you're seeing for this care does not even want to acknowledge or talk about their transition or assist them with it. And that causes a lot of problems because in many cases that that gender dysphoria, that discomfort and that distress by having a body that doesn't match how you identify is one of the problems. Like that that causes a lot of a lot of discomfort, anxiety, depression. And then seeing a mental health professional that doesn't recognize that. That's detrimental. Um, one of the really, really interesting things that came out of TransFalse when they looked at suicidal behavior and medical transition, for those who wanted to medically transition but had not yet started, 28% had attempted suicide in the past year, mm. whereas those who had started their medical transition, um, it went down to about 17% who had attempted suicide in the past year. For those who had completed their medical transition, it went down to 1% who had attempted suicide in the past year. Mm-hmm. So does, does medical transition help with mental health? It certainly helps with suicide. Mm-hmm. And I hear a lot anecdotally and even from my own experience, so I hear from people that I've worked with, where they start on hormone therapy and they start feeling better and they start feeling happier. They start feeling more comfortable in their own skin. And 
so for many people, it may not be the cure, but it can certainly help with the symptoms because it could be one of the things that are causing the symptoms. Right. I was just curious about, um, I mean, we're involved in social media. So on one hand, you know, we talk about bullying and the, and the dangers of social media, but, but it can be a great tool for people that feel like nobody out there understands and it's a whole world of people that can come together. How do you, how do you help people with manage the, the, the landmine that is social media to stay away from the negative and the bullying and, and try and use it as a tool to support well, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. I think that was a movie. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Old movie. <then. laughs> um, so one of the things that we have done, because the area we work with isn't just Sudbury, we've also worked with people across northeastern Ontario. So having somebody way up in Timmins or Cochrane or Capascasing attending a group, it's not going to be possible, or somebody living on Manitoulin Island, by the way, there's no public transportation from Manitoulin Island to Sudbury <laughs> and back. So even no. if they did want to attend a group and then just make it a weekend trip, it's impossible unless mm -hmm. you have a car. So access and transportation is a really big issue. Um, so we do offer meetings online where I'll meet with people through webcam or over the phone or email, whatever works for the person. Um, so that helps to reduce some of those barriers around geography because the northeastern Ontario region is the size of Germany. It's massive. And, and that's one of those ways where internet and social media have been helpful. Mm -hmm. Of course, a lot of the youth I work with do not even check their emails. Mm -hmm. So when I have to send out those group reminders, I go to Facebook. Right. And it gets the word out there. I may not even have everyone's email. So we put up the group updates and reminders, share articles, put pictures up and videos so that way people remember we exist because it shows up on the news feed when you do that. Um, so in some ways it's really helpful uh, having those Facebook message groups open. That's how we actually do a lot of the planning around groups. Um, so with, with the Francophone group, what they've done is um, once a month a meal is made all together and so a week before, hey everyone, what do you want to eat? Um, here are some ideas, or something will come up like so-and-so has contacted me because they're interested in doing a workshop for a group. How do you feel? And that way you don't have that whole emailing back and forth thing. Everyone's just in the Facebook page. Um, the other thing that I have seen on Facebook and other social media websites is binder exchanges, where trans men who can't, or trans masculine people, or non-binary people who wear chest binders who can't afford to buy one can go online and find somebody who's willing to swap. So maybe one person has grown and one person has shrunk. That happens. Or, you know, someone's body changes, swap it. Or um, somebody's just saying, oh, well, I've had surgery. I don't need it anymore. I'm giving it away. So those have become some really great tools. I've also seen... The ugly, where people are being bullied mm. on social media, um, who they are is leaked online, and they have been outed, and it's turned really ugly. Um, there are issues, even with some chat rooms. I I used to go on the trans these trans chat rooms back when I was in high school. It was it was two years before I met another trans man in my community. Mm. I thought I was the only one for a very long time. So I've gone to these chat rooms, and you have some people who go on who shouldn't be on the, mm -hmm. the forum. Mm -hmm. And you also have people who are there with their own baggage. And there isn't a, 
always a moderator or facilitator who's screening what's going on. So you may have people who have very old school and very... Not the greatest very, intentions. Well, their, their ideology comes from a very, very bad place. Mm -hmm. um, it comes from a place of hurt and a place of harm and a place of self-loathing. And they're not in a position to be counseling people right. in a chat room. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that could be the negative side of it. But mm -hmm. I think if well-moderated yeah. and well-organized, it can be a very helpful tool. I'm curious your thoughts, um, you know, having lived the journey and you're living it every day, um, and you've seen the evolution in, in how I'm sure you were treated as a trans person years ago into how you're treated today. Uh, you see what's going on in the States. There's legislation, I think it's in North Carolina, about bathroom use. Mm -hmm. And what's really uh, encouraging to me, just being a, a regular guy in suburban Toronto, is that these groups that you wouldn't traditionally associate with uh, political causes, like such as the NBA and NFL and athletes, and mm -hmm. they're kind of coming to the defense of trans, the transgender community and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and helping raise awareness about their issue. Did you ever think mm -hmm. of something like that would happen when you were like kind of in the, maybe the beginning parts of your journey? I am thoroughly impressed and thoroughly surprised by professional sports and how things have been received. So I remember a few years ago, do you remember Fallon Fox? Fallon Fox. Oh. She is a mixed martial arts fighter who came out as trans in Sports Illustrated back in 2003. Mm -hmm. And there was a UFC fighter who... Not, e not even in the same league, because she was fighting in a women's league and he was a professional UFC fighter who had gone, gone on record and made some very transphobic remarks. He was suspended by the UFC. And I'm thinking UFC and, you know, it's all, it's all meatheads who <laughs> can barely string sentences together. Um, very close-minded, all that. And that was my perception of, of athletes in that particular sport or the people running it. And... No, he was suspended. And so it showed this, this support from, from the professional league. Um, and even in Fallon Fox's own um, league, the women's professional league, I don't know what it's called. Um, she had a lot of support from the higher-ups. There were fighters who refused to fight her. And there was a lot of negative backlash when she came out. Um, but there were also a lot of supporters. And so hearing with the NBA, um, their support, and what's happening even here with hockey, it's, it's great to see. You shouldn't have to give up things you love, like sports, because you come out as trans. And one of the conversations I have often with young people when they're coming out at school who play sports is, can I still play basketball? Can I still play football? Can I still do this? Can I still do that? And I say, yes. And under the Ontario Human Rights Code, if you want to switch teams, you have the right to do so. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been, it's been really uplifting to see kind of a society kind of raise their game, to use a sports kind of a metaphor. And uh, it's great chatting with you. Great. Thanks for taking the time. It was, uh, yeah. I really enjoyed uh, your presentation this morning, and it was even better chatting with you today. And uh, it was nice to have somebody else from Sudbury up on the podcast to help <laughs> you me. You said you were from Greater Suburban yeah. Toronto, right? Like uh, you're yeah. all over the map. Well, but, I live, you but, know, I live there now, okay. but I'll <laughs> always be from Sudbury. And uh, it was really great to meet you. Thank you yeah, very much. It was much. a pleasure. Thank you.
Okay. So, two great guests again. Excellent guests, and uh, someone I really enjoyed talking to from Sudbury, which after you know working with you, I didn't know if I'd ever find, but definitely, Vincent, was a, a real pleasure to talk to. I'm going to choose to ignore okay. that and move on, because sure. we know Sudbury is a great place, great mm-hmm. place in our province, and uh, if you ever have is the privilege of going... Is it in Ontario? It is Ontario, okay. yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah. And if you ever get the privilege of going there... Um, I'm sh- I'll ask them to let you in. Thank you. <laughs> but, it's a gated uh, community. I'm it, sorry, yeah, well, okay. it should be. All right. It's a it's a jewel. It's a jewel in Ontario. Okay. Jewel of guests. Yes. To segue, guests. Uh, and two important issues that um, we haven't really touched on this week, and it was great to have them on. Obviously, mental health and law enforcement, and the mental health in the transgender community. Yeah, really, really important issues, and and that really require a lot of attention and solutions. You know, policing and the and the prevalence of mental illness and what they deal with on a day-to-day. And even, you know, it was fascinating. And, you know, until you start looking into the, the, the transgender issues and when we look at suicide and mental illness, you don't realize until you start to sort of dig deep how prevalent it is. So these, these conversations are really important that we all need to have. And it was great to be here this week and get so many diverse uh people, organizations, there's lots of aspects to mental health, and we touched on a lot of them this week, and we were able to do it in one spot, so thanks to CMHA and, and yeah. the Mental Health for All Conference for, for having us, and it's been Maybe a fun Maybe they'll week. have us back next year, who knows? It was a great yeah. conference, though, and, and um, we really appreciate the opportunity to engage a lot of people in the conversation on our podcast. And we enjoyed the week, and we hope everybody enjoyed the content that we were able to put out. Thanks for tuning in. Visit mindvine.ontarioshores.ca for details on upcoming podcasts. And don't forget to keep the conversation going on social media by using hashtag mindvine.